every year at the benefit year end would send notes out to the employees to make sure that they make as many claims as they could. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Today's episode is all dealing with group insurance. We've got Lori Power on. And because it's all group insurance, the CE credits are a little bit different from some other episodes. This would be good for those in Alberta for accident and sickness credits, but no life insurance credits. It will be good for insurance credits in all other jurisdictions. We'll have it approved for advocates. We'll have an IAS number and also good for financial planning credits from FP Canada. No IROC credits for today's episode either. So we have Lori on and Lori and I have a long relationship as you'll hear in the episode. In fact, I was just a guest on her show on her shift or let's talk about this shift show and actually, I'll include the show notes to this, but my wife is going to be a guest on there talking about medical cannabis in mid-August, August 13th. So the link for that will be in the show notes as well. Anyways, Lori is really solid on the group benefit side, and she, like a lot of group folks that I know, only does group. So that's where she talks early on about her co-broker role and how she doesn't do any individual or wealth business, but if she meets somebody who needs help with group, she can take on that relationship and leave the other advisor to deal with all the non-group portions. So quite interesting. And Lori and I hardly talk about financial planning at all, although she has a really good handle, in my opinion, on risk management and where group insurance contracts fill a risk management role and really where they're more about taxation. And it's something we don't talk about at all in the interview, but I do want to just mention it briefly here. So what I believe anyways, and you'll hear myriad opinions around this, and I would suggest that my opinion is certainly not the only one that's worth anything here. But what I believe is that with group insurance contracts, the biggest value comes on the long-term disability side. And that's where we tend to find the least coverage on the individual side. So many people don't carry any disability insurance. It's complicated to underwrite. It's relatively expensive premiums. And it's just the contracts can be difficult. So that's where the LTD portion of your group insurance contract is where you're paying a sort of modest premium for what is potentially a very large amount of coverage. Now, that being said, we are increasingly seeing the prescription drug coverage, and Lori mentions it in the discussion here where she talks about rheumatoid arthritis, for example, 
And on that side, we have the concern that you end up with prescription drug claims in the tens of thousands of dollars a year. You occasionally get these into the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. That's normally with respect to cancer drugs, but oftentimes those very expensive cancer drug claims can be handled outside of your group benefits contract. So I don't know if I would argue that the group benefits contract provides such valuable risk management on that side, although we do see it sometimes. There are well-known stories now amongst the group benefits community of cancer drug claims in excess of a million dollars a year showing up on a benefits plan. And just on that note, so Lori talks in here quite a bit about renewals and what happens from year to year in a benefits plan. And I think it's noteworthy here. Now, the first couple of years are always a little bit different. The first couple of years don't necessarily work just like this. But once you're in an established relationship with an insurer, what will happen is every year the insurer will look at your claims to determine what next year's premium will look like. If you have a smaller group, then your group would have low what's called credibility, which means we wouldn't look very much at your claims. We would look at the broader set of insureds for that insurer, and we would use more of their experience versus your sort of narrower experience. But once you have larger groups, and the numbers vary here depending on the type of coverage we're talking about, once you have larger groups, then we start to see more reliance on that group's credibility. So that's where we would say, look, how many times your employees went to the dentist this year is probably a good indicator of how many times your employees will go to the dentist next year. And if you have maybe 40 or 50 lives, there's probably a fair bit of credibility there, whereas with maybe 10 or 15 lives, there's not so much credibility. We would say, you know, 10 or 15 people, we could see real volatility in the number and dollar amount of dental claims. So anyways, what happens then is once we have an idea about what those claims are going to look like or have looked like, then the insurer will apply its trend. And that is where they say, with a group like this, what do we expect in terms of increased expenses next year? And some of that is owing to inflation. This is where sometimes people get confused. Sometimes people conflate inflation with trend. They are not the same thing. Inflation is only one element of trend. When we look at trend, we look at the overall pattern that we expect to see with people using their benefits plan. And what you'll find here is that as people get older, that means that there's potentially more claims just based on that person's age. That's not an inflationary pressure. And that's true for lots of things. That's true for prescription drugs. That's true for dental. We can look at the stability in the plan. And as people sort of stay there for longer, we find that they, in fact, will get used to using the plan. Now, Lori talks about this quite well, and I think Lori and I share this perspective that when you're talking about using the plan, it's not something to be scared of. It's not something that we should avoid. It's important that we set up a plan with the expectation that plan members use it. So, yes, the experience, the usage by the plan members is going to drive those renewal premiums. But if you weren't expecting that, then why set up a plan at all?
Now, Lori and I talk in here a little bit, we touch on it anyways, on G18. This comes from the CLHIA, the Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association. And CLHIA introduced in 2018 their guideline G18, which was intended to create the framework for a compensation disclosure amongst group benefits brokers. And really, it was very specific to folks who are selling group insurance contracts. It was a little bit murkier around group retirement. There was going to be sort of a phased rollout of disclosure around group retirement compensation disclosure. And that was going to sort of disproportionately, I would suggest, impact group brokers. Now, I think if you talk to CLHIA about this, they would say, It wasn't really that our intention was to disproportionately impact group brokers. It was that we kind of had to start somewhere, and that's where we started. That argument, I think, didn't ring very true to the group benefits broker community. So that's where really this community stood up and said, hang on a second here. This is not an appropriate measure for these purposes. And it's going to really affect those of us who are entrepreneurs and have built our own businesses differently than it's going to affect, let's say, the carriers when they have a direct contract with the plan sponsor. So that's where there was that sort of disproportionality and it led to that big pushback. And in fact, we do have it now where CLHIA in May of 2019, withdrew that measure. So they said, in fact, we're not going to do this. And just to give CLHA a chance to sort of speak for themselves here, you can listen to the Green Shield Canada, and now for something completely indifferent is the name of the podcast, the Green Shield Canada podcast. It's quite good. They have fairly technical topics on there, mostly with respect to group benefits. And I quite like Green Shield Canada. In fact, in this interview, Lori talks about insurers giving some COVID-related rebates back to their plan members. And Green Shield Canada, I think, did a really good job of structuring that rebate. Basically, what happened is during at least the first sort of three and a half or four months of COVID, it was very difficult to go see a dentist, for example, it did not make sense to keep paying dental premiums during that time. And the insurers recognized that and said, look, we're going to refund a good chunk of those premiums. And between 50 to 70% is what I've seen, depending on the insurer, we're going to refund those back to the plan sponsor, help them save a few bucks and take some of the pressure off with respect to COVID, lots of COVID-related questions. We could have done a whole interview on that. Yeah, tons of COVID-related questions with respect to group benefits. Anyways, back to Green Shield Canada. So Green Shield Canada does have Stephen Frank, who is the president and CEO of the CLHIA on as a guest periodically. I think he's been on three episodes. They're all worth listening to. I find he's quite a good guest. He speaks as frankly as I think is possible in a position like he holds. 
about these issues and really not scared to talk about issues like what happened around G19. So go listen to that podcast, especially if you're a group benefits person and you've not picked it up. It covers lots of really good group benefits topics. The color for today's episode is yellow. The color is yellow. Okay, on that note, let's roll into the interview. Let's hear what Lori has to say. She's got a whole bunch of anecdotes and opinions here about group insurance. I'm a big fan of Lori's take on so many of these issues. Okay, joining us today, we have Lori Power. Lori is a group benefit specialist, mostly in the small business side of things, located here in Edmonton. Long experience in benefits, I know at least a couple decades, Lori. And I know you're really a true specialist here, right? You only work in group benefits, and I know you have some co-broker relationships with folks who don't necessarily want to learn that small benefit side. Can you talk a little bit about maybe that co-broker thing, Lori? I find that always very interesting. Because I only do employee group benefits, I'm only interested in the human capital that the employer has. And many times that employer is working with, for the corporation, he's working with a, or he or she is working with a financial planner who's taking care of their, both their business corporately and individual needs when it comes to life and disability and buy sells. And because employee group benefits involves the employees and a schmozzel of different coverages for that financial planner to deviate from their focus on the business owner oftentimes will cause them to lose that business owner. So they'll bring somebody like me in who takes care of the benefit plan without ever having to worry about somebody stepping on their toes with regards to their relationship with the corporation. And what ends up happening is it's a very strong relationship that they are able to hold and maintain because the employer knows that the human capital of the corporation is being well looked after and they themselves are being well looked after. So we're not talking small, short-term relationships. We're talking some relationships that are right now over 20 years old. And those relationships between myself and that co-broker and the client is as strong. And in that relationship, then, would you go sit down with the HR manager, for example, and the other broker, the co-broker, would sort of maintain the relationship with the business owner? Is that typical? Or you sort of put a package together, give it to that other broker, say, this is what you want to tell that person in their renewal how does that work? No, the the I'm always talking to the business owner or or the HR manager or typically both, but I, I do like to deal with the decision maker. So if at all possible, and I think that's what holds me to that small and medium-sized band because I'm still able to deal with the decision maker. So that's that's my preference there, but I'm always dealing directly with them. I keep the co-broker in the loop and the business owner is never under any illusion that, you know, the, the co-broker is not in the picture because they are in the picture, but they're not needed in the picture when it comes to the employee group benefit plan, unless they want to be. And very seldom that happens for longer than maybe one meeting. <laughs> Once they start to hear about trends, they're out. They say, oh, yeah, the, the attention span results to a gnat. <laughs> 
I mean, to be fair, trend is pretty confusing and uh, doesn't match with, I think, our expectations of reality, right? No, no. And, you know, in so much, despite the conversation, so much of employee group benefits is still considered a commodity versus a compensation package where, and it renews annually. So it's one year renewable term. And for a financial planner, that's just not even speaking in the same language that they're used to speaking on. And that's a great point, right? At one year renewable term, and even to the point that it's really cancelable within that year. Absolutely. It's only month to month contract when you break it down. The, the insurance carrier is on their side agreeing to hold those rates for 12 months well, outside of the first year because there's usually a, a rate guarantee. But thereafter, it's only 12 months that they're guaranteeing that they're going to hold those rates. But from the client's point of view, they can move at any time. They're never, they're never held. So it's interesting that you bring up that concept of sort of commodification of benefits versus compensation. I, I've heard you talk about this before. Of course, for those who don't know, Lori's a regular speaker at our annual group insurance symposium. But How do you package that for the employer? How do you get them to think about this as more than a commodity? Well, I've learned over the years that there's there's a hammer and a a nail. And very often, if the employer isn't getting the message, then that's the nail that needs to be hammered in. So I point out and like to itemize what's being used. And if we're talking about pharmacy and healthcare, I will ask that question very directly. What happens if you don't have that coverage in place? So let's say it's a three to one usage. For every dollar in premium, $3 is paid out in claims. That sounds unrealistic to somebody who may not deal in the group benefits world. It's not unrealistic to somebody like myself who sees those kind of numbers every year. Again, we're not talking about dental or vision. We're talking about pharmacy. We're talking about somebody who may have Crohn's, may have rheumatoid arthritis, and those claims are very real. So I say to the employer, what happens if you don't offer this coverage? Where is that money coming from? And again, we then that leads into that conversation about stop loss and that $10,000 that they're on the hook for versus the money that's actually being paid out, whether that's forty or 50000 I actually had a situation where year over year, an employee was receiving more than $100,000 in benefit claims, and they're on a salary of 65000 So you tell me when we're not talking compensation, because now that employee has to choose between their health and a job, right? So that's, that we take that conversation very real. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough trade-off, right? And you're an employer, and especially today, you know, we're talking about this in the sort of middle of this COVID scenario, and employers are very cost-sensitive today, but, you know, presumably there's some value in that team you have working with you, right? So. Well, and, and to make them understand that we're going to be, and we are already losing that Alberta tax advantage over the last few years. If I think about when I first moved to Alberta and the tax advantage at that point in time to where we are now and that marginal tax rate and knowing the government programming that we've gone through with COVID, taxes are only going to go up. So to be able to receive compensation on a non-taxable basis can be the difference between you know 30 to 40% on that dollar. And that's that's a very, very important number to convey to a business owner. And I've seen your presentation on this again as well, this idea that 
it's more than just value for the dollar here. It's if you structure the benefits plan properly, it's really value well beyond. And if you're talking about, you know, a 40% tax rate, which is not unusual for an Albertan today, you're really getting about one and a half times the the dollar you're spending in terms of after-tax value, right? So You absolutely are. And you're not limited. The employees aren't limited by being restricted on their coverage other than how the employer may restrict the coverage. But in so much as there's no medical evidence required for that coverage, so they can have existing conditions and be eligible for coverage. And that's a huge compensation component. It baffles my imagination that we've gone out to the market year over year over year with the tagline to attract and retain employees. But yet in that attraction and retaining conversation, we've missed the big picture of compensation versus commodity. And we've done that to ourselves as advisors, because if it is supposed to be an attraction and retention tool, you have to talk about that compensation and that non-taxable advantage. Yeah, that's perfect. Now, just on that note of sort of no underwriting and so forth. So I know that you like to do employee meetings. I think I have that right. I think you find they're generally a good experience. Yes. What's your discussion with the employer look like? So you're coming in with a a new group, new to you, right? And let's say they've never done employee meetings before. Do you try to sell them on the idea of the employee meeting? Is it something you say, I'll only take on a group if we're doing an employee meeting? How do you treat that? No, I'm not not ever going to say I'll only do a group if we do an employee meeting. I look at the holistic advantage for the employer. The better prepared, the better informed, the better educated, the more open the conversation that you can have with an employee group the more that they're going to respect the benefit plan, it doesn't mean they're going to not use the benefit plan, but they're going to respect the employer's contribution on it being a benefit instead of being an entitlement. I learned this lesson really early on in my career where I had a client who specifically didn't want employees to have a benefit booklet, didn't want them to know anything about the benefit plan and really put the foot down on what the communication was going to look like. And as a result, the employees were trying to claim everything. They were always rejected and they were so angry. And that's actually at the point to which I took over the program. And one of the first things I said was, these people are so confused. We need to allow them to understand this forms part of their compensation. So let's have an employee meeting. And that was one of the big turnarounds. We didn't have to worry about adjusting rates, adjusting coverage. We had to worry about informing the employees so that they knew what they were covered for. And it released a huge burden from their shoulders. When you do that, I mean, that's all about information. Do you expect that there would be an increase in usage following the employee meeting? Is that something you have to warn the or do you sort of position it so you don't? I've never seen it happen. I have never seen a spike in usage because of an employee meeting. At the end of the day, they're going to utilize however they they are going to utilize, irregardless. Somebody who's intent on using all of the paramedical services and go through an acupuncture, a chiro, a physio, massage, me coming in and telling them about their coverage isn't going to change that mentality at all. But it is going to help when somebody has 
tried to make a vision care claim under the assumption that they have vision care coverage where the employer might have a health spending account. And so they're not understanding why they keep getting rejected on vision when everybody tells them they have vision care coverage. And that's a good indication of awareness, right? There's tons of things like that. There's often confusion around prescription drug claims, right? I'm sure you help to alleviate a lot of that. On that note, where, where we have had issues in the past was a customer, and I'm going to go back three or four years, had a general manager who every year at the benefit year end, so a month prior to the benefit year end, would send notes out to the employees to make sure that they understood the benefit year end was coming up and to get out and make as many claims as they could. Now, that is contrary to an employee meeting, and that's where usage spiked was because the messaging from the general manager was it's an entitlement so use it rather than our messaging when we go in to have an employee meeting is it's a benefit forms part of your compensation and you are as responsible for that end use as your employer. That's an insane bit of mess. I've never heard that before. It, it happens. It happens. I mean, I know you see it like your physio has that sign up that says year end is coming, right? My dentist calls me every December 10th or whatever, right? Well, that's just good marketing on that end. But but I have seen that happen in, in several groups. That's not an isolated situation. And that's the difference between dealing with the decision maker versus somebody who has perhaps the wrong messaging. And we have not had that opportunity to converse. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's just, I guess somebody who just doesn't understand how their benefit plan works, right? No, no. And they, they, they don't have the skin in the game. Yeah, that's fair. Or they don't think they do because ultimately, unless it's a completely employer paid plan, we all have skin in the game on our benefits plans, right? And it is so confusing because people think for whatever reason that it's there to be used. It's there when you need it. It's not there to be used just for the sake of usage. So I I will be in an employee meeting and I'll go, you're not going to go crash your car just because you have vehicle coverage, right? You're just not going to do that. You're not going to burn down your house every year so you get value out of that insurance. But employee group benefits continues to have that mantle that says, I'm here to be used, and it removes that insurance component away from it. And I value that insurance component as well. Not everybody does. And you and I chatted offline a little bit about a scenario where you had some folks who decided they wanted to opt out of their benefits plan. I'm just wondering if you can chat a little bit before we get into that scenario about how opting out works, what's normally allowed, what the limitations on this are. Can you give us a little primer there? So an employee, when they have a benefit plan, they can opt out of health and dental if they have spousal coverage elsewhere. But the expectation is that they will be covered for the mandatory insurance components that they can't be covered for under a spousal plan. And that would be like the life insurance, the AD&D, dependent life, short and long-term disability as it applies. So the pure insurance aspects that are related to their salary. 
Many employers get into trouble when they deal with employees who then say, well, I don't want to come onto the plan. I have coverage through my spouse. And then they'll allow that employee to waive off entire coverage. Problem is the insurance company doesn't know that they've ever existed. The employee's spouse doesn't know that they've waived off this coverage. So I'm going to take it out of the realm of mandatory or not. It comes down to who's going to pay that claim in the event that that employee dies or becomes disabled. And I haven't yet come across, and I'm not an employment lawyer, I haven't yet come across a case where the employer wasn't found negligent to broadly use that word and found to have to pay that claim out. So I have had a situation with a client, then I'm going to go back years ago, who had an employee driving home from work, got into a car accident and died. That employee had never been put onto the benefit plan and according to the beneficiary had never been offered coverage. The beneficiary had no means of burial in a dignified fashion. There was nothing there. There was no individual coverage. There was nothing. And the first knock on the door was to the employer to say, well, shouldn't she have been on the benefit plan? And then the second call was to myself saying, how come they weren't on the benefit plan? Well, okay, I didn't know they existed because you never told anybody. And you better just contact a lawyer and pay this out because you're the insurer now. And that's a real life scenario. And I've seen that with LTD as well, of course, right? And for group, actually, the LTD can be a more expensive claim that way than a life insurance claim. Now, as far as employees opting out of the health and dental, and this is, I think, the story that you and I had gone over before. So when employees opt out of the health and dental side, what's the messaging there? Or how do you present that as okay, maybe at least reconsider that decision. I I don't really. If they have spousal coverage for health and dental, I don't ever concern myself with that because what do I care? They're just walking away from the employer's money. So nobody's unhappy. My one and only concern is that the employees are covered for that life and disability coverage. Now, the scenario we were talking about here is the employee had refused to come on to any form of coverage. So now I've taken over the plan and I've recognized that they were two employees not on coverage. And my question to the employer was, why aren't they on coverage? And is the corporation willing to be the insurer in the event of their death or disability? To which the employer said, what? Nobody ever told me that. And I said, well, I'm telling it to you now, you have a liability risk. You have nothing on the books to say that you offered this coverage. You have nothing that says that they're not going to come back to you and expect that they're going to have that coverage in the event of a death or disability. Well, we have to fix that. Okay. So the first thing, and of course, COVID has meant everything is done via Zoom, which is usually if I'm in person, it's it's a lot easier to have these conversations. But via Zoom, I'm talking to the employee who comes in incredibly hostile. And I said, listen, we're going to have to dial this back. I am not attacking you. I'm giving you a way out. If you don't want this coverage, all I want you to do is hold harmless the corporation. I need you to prepare paperwork from a lawyer where you and your beneficiary will sign off that the corporation offered it to you and you're not taking it. 
his initial response was the corporation should provide that paperwork. You know what? In many cases, I'm sure that they can. That's not the approach I take. I take the approach that the employee has made the choice not to come on to the benefit plan. So therefore, the employee should make the choice in hiring the lawyer that they trust to prepare that paperwork. Now, we're talking less than $10 a month, okay? This is what was on the docket here. So I lay it out for him. I said, this is your way out. And, you know, and if you don't have a lawyer, I'm happy to recommend one. But this is what I'd like you to do because we don't want the corporation to be the insurer. So he bounces out of the room, right? And I get a call the next week. Let's do this again. He's got questions now. I said, okay. So he comes back in and he says, not as hostile, asking really good questions at this point. Like, what am I giving up? And questions that tell me he's talked to enough people that they're probably looking at him and going, really? What's going on here? So then we have a group meeting. And it's the very first time this has ever happened to me where this employee, talk about the converted, this employee stands up in front of all of the employees and says, I am not too big a man to know when I've made a mistake. And he itemized the mistakes of what he was giving up as a benefit of working for that corporation. I didn't have to say anything in that employee meeting. He said it all and it was fantastic. Like non-underwritten coverage and certainty around claims. Now he has to do the medical questionnaire, but he said to the new people in the room, he's like, but you don't have to do this. I wish I had had the brains two years ago to do this. It's perfect. It's great to hear that, right? And I think sometimes the fact that you have to do underwriting, it attaches some value to it. It says, look, you want to get insured here. You put some effort into it. It really becomes almost like a sunk cost issue. And I'm sure that that message from, from that other employee will resonate and, you know, no knock on, on you, Lori, but that message will resonate more than if you said it. A hundred percent. That's what I mean. Like you have to know when to shut up and, and let them do the talking because nothing I say is going to be as powerful as one of their own. And that meeting was a Zoom meeting as well? It was. It was. How much are you finding Zoom as a tool here being useful? Like, let's say a year from now, we're all done with this mess. Would you be using Zoom in some situations when you would have previously done face-to-face? Or are you in a scrap Zoom as soon as this is over? No, I think Zoom is now part of my toolbox. I can't see me ever giving up Zoom now. It's made it easier for the employers to get their people in the room. We can record the sessions and they can reuse them. It's a means of the screen sharing. Because I miss a face-to-face and I'm a face-to-face person, I will go back to that when people are open to receive me but I can see that Zoom will now form probably two to three days out of the week of meeting time versus my constantly traveling. A difference between somebody who does what I do on the group side and somebody who does individual is very often the, the individual financial planner will have people come to their office, whereas the expectation is on group that you go to the client. So my go-to has always been, you know, I work out of my car because I'd spend all day going from meeting to meeting. And now Zoom has, because only because we've had to do it, it's now facilitated something that has created a habit. I think it's great. And I'm sure you have tons of groups where you have an employer located in West Lock with employees and 
you know, St. Paul and Stony Plain and whatever else, right? In Montreal, it's really interesting. Zoom has allowed me to meet a client that I've had for years, but have never met face-to-face. It's been quite a good tool. I do think that's a positive that will come out of all of this. You know, and I know we like our face-to-face meetings, but you take a lot of risk when you put yourself in the car and tool around three or 400 kilometers in a day, right? And there is a way to use Zoom correctly. And it's certainly not something that I adopted. I, I purchased it immediately, but it's not something that I adopted to right away. But it is so important to have that face-to-face and be able to see that body language and to be willing to share that body language. So when I go into a meeting now, it's cameras on. And I'm really not shy about asking people to leave their cameras on because we'll only get from the meeting what we put into the meeting. And if the cameras are off and the mic is off, then they're typing. They're not paying attention and it's wasted time. So who wants to waste that? Yeah, I agree with that. I was in a meeting last night, actually, another Zoom meeting, and one of the folks in the call said she's just Zoomed out, but I don't know, I spend most of my days on Zoom. Well, and I I asked the question on LinkedIn this morning, are you networking effectively in this virtual environment or are you just attending webinars? And there is a difference, right? If you're just attending webinars, I'd be Zoomed out too. But if you're utilizing the virtual platform in the same manner that you would network or attend a meeting, then you know what? Early days, I might have been exhausted, but I'm not anymore because I'm gathering the energy from the conversation. Yeah, that's always been the way for me, right? It's always about that feedback from the folks you're working with, right? That's where my energy comes from. Yeah, I very much agree with that. Can we just circle back for a second on the COVID side? And what have you heard from your employer groups about the discounts insurers are offering? Do people care about this? Is it meaningful? They absolutely care. Yeah, they absolutely care. If I was ever going to put kudos out to all the insurers out there, they've really stepped up. And they've stepped up in all of the right ways. They've stepped up by looking at the premiums that are paid for benefits that people couldn't access. They've stepped up by doing that premium reductions. They've stepped up by deferring the renewals, but without altering the renewal itself. So for instance, the renewals on my desk that are come due for August are deferred until October, but the renewal date is still there for August and I will still be able to meet with the client and I'll say to them, the rate change isn't going to take effect until October. And they're so appreciative of that. And the insurance carriers are not looking to reclaim that money. I could shake my head and say, you know, be a skeptic and say they'll find ways to reclaim that money for sure. But at the moment, the messaging is they're not, and they have really stepped up. I'm not a group broker myself, obviously, but what I've heard is that at the same time, they're saying, but for the brokers, this is not going to affect, at least in the short term, your compensation. Am I getting that messaging right as well? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the broker's compensation will be impacted by the usage on the plan. So let's not forget, the more people utilize the benefit plan, 
then your rates have to go up. And if your rates go up, the premium goes up. And so therefore the broker's comp that's based on overall premium would go up. So telling us that it's not going to impact our comp in this year is great because that's the way it really should be. However, you'd be looking at usage in in a 12 month period. Now, having said that, I have engaged in conversations where I have not agreed with a Benefits Canada article that came out and was looking at, you know, what they expect benefits to look like. And the problem with that particular article, in my opinion, was they looked at COVID as an isolated event, as though all of the claims were going to happen in this three or four month period. But the benefit plan you take dental, for instance, is based on a calendar year maximum. So somebody's not going to go over that maximum regardless. And to state that somebody is suddenly going to use more dental care because of COVID, I think misses the mark as well. It's more fear-mongering than anything else. I look at my social media feed this morning. I had the new Saskatchewan guidelines for dentists there, and I can't see how dental claims are going to go up. Dentists are going to be half as busy as they were just for the protocols they have to follow. I don't see dental claims going up and I don't see a mad rush of people going back to the dentist. You know, they've been open for emergencies. So if there's been an emergency, somebody needs something done, then, you know, they've been able to access that coverage. If you're looking at the day-to-day, the cleanings and, and things like that, I'm not convinced that you're going to see big soaring of claims. No, I don't think so either. Maybe in Calgary, it doesn't have fluoridated water and Edmonton does. And maybe in Calgary, if you got little kids, you're more concerned about it. But I I don't even think most people think that far into it. Now, the marketing side, since I've known you, you've always been very forward thinking on the marketing side. And I'm interested to hear, first off, and we're on a camera call right now on Zoom, right? So let's talk about this shift in the background there. And I think you're maybe five or four episodes into this thing now, but you've been doing your Zoom cast, Zoom TV show. Can you talk about that a little bit? When COVID first struck, and I'm going to go back to March 13th, and it was a Friday the 13th, so it's memorable. And that was, I guess, my first awareness to how important this COVID thing, because that's all it was at that point in time, was this noise on the background of people buying toilet paper. So that was my first awareness to it. And what made me aware was the travel restrictions. And I had to get out to to the marketplace for people that I knew who were traveling, get out to the clients to say, okay, you've got your employees who are traveling. Let's be sure that we let them know what's going on here because they may not know. You can't assume that they know wherever they are. So that was our first go-to. And normally I'll do blogs every two weeks, but from that point onward for both the next three weeks, it was a go. Every day was to make sure that the messaging was getting out there on how this is going to apply to their employees, how this is going to apply to them as their businesses. And although none of it initially was specific to their employee group benefit plan, because the benefit plan is the human capital, everything that was going on related to their business need it to be relayed. It was well received and I'm not a fan of just sending information for the sake of sending information. I want it to be of value. And radio is my first love. So I thought, now how am I going to pivot this messaging so that I can be sure as employers are trying to get back strong into the marketplace, into their own marketplace, that they have the information they need 
to go forward. And the reason I love radio so much is because you can always listen just like a podcast. And that's why I love podcasts. You can listen to that person being interviewed and you can make your own decisions on that. And somebody's not putting a spin on it. I really have not enjoyed the spin from the media perspective with regards to COVID. So I thought, you know what? I got together with a panel and I said, let's, let's go out and be sure that we're going to give people the effective information that they need. We need to talk about this shit. Can I say that? It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and that was, wow, you know, we really do need to talk about it. So it was, how do I alter the message to keep it, you know, without being a PG rating and know that we are pivoting. So what would be pivotal to your organizational needs. So that's where the shift show came into effect. And it's pulling people in, whether that's leadership, whether it's lawyers to talk about employment law, whether it's contracts, family and estate planning, how are all these things going to impact you on a go forward basis. So I pull in the experts that I've known over the last 20 years. And Jason, you've been fantastic to connect me with other experts and putting them on where we can have a face face-to-face conversation. The important part of the shift show that I think will make it different is it is a conversation. It's cameras on and it's a networking. So when somebody comes in, I want to meet you. I want to get to know you. It's not a webinar. So the people that are in the room know they're in the room specifically to answer your questions and concerns because this is a pivotal time. So the response so far has been good and I hope it continues to be good. It'll only continue to be good if I continue to have the right people having that conversation. I find it really interesting. I mean, you pivoted very quickly with that. And I know you're you're always looking at interesting ways to market. And really kudos to, to getting that thing rolling very quickly. And you said your numbers, at least I think your numbers have been good on that. I know we chatted about this a little bit. You know, even if you only get one person in the room, that's what you want. I've had brokers from from other provinces call me and pick my brain about it. And I'm happy to give the information. And I'm really, really excited this morning. I saw another benefit company and they've launched a show. You know, being first out of the gate is a good thing. But to see others copying it is also very good because of the end of the day, what you want is you want that messaging shared. You want to be able to have valuable information out there. I like the idea in general of employers seeing their benefits broker as a resource for a bunch of questions, right? You don't want that person scared to call you. You want to get those issues before they become real problems. Absolutely. We are just one picket in the fence. So, you know, put as many pickets out there for people who need it right now. Absolutely. Now, just back to your content marketing side, I know you're also, you talked about your love of radio, but you're also a published author, right? You've written a range of stuff, kids' books, grown-up books, right? Cookbooks. (laughs) But also you've got two books that are on my shelf, specifically on the benefit side. Can you talk a little bit about how those have played into your marketing efforts or played into how you present yourself to maybe other brokers? There isn't a lot of information out there with regards to how to put employee benefits together. There's a lot, when people think employee benefits, they're thinking pension plans. 
And when I was doing the research on available content, it was so minuscule and was so focused on that financial side. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're walking away from information that is valuable into the billions of dollars annually spent. And I'm talking claims spent, not premium, claims for benefit plans. And why isn't anybody focused on that information? And very often I feel like it's a broom sweeping the ocean. So, you know, why wait for somebody else to do it? I've gotten years of experience and I pick the brains of my clients. And so the first book, Insight, is all from the client's perspective. It's information that was derived exactly from scenarios with clients and how we overcame that. The second book, Perspective, is saying to an employer in my own language to say, listen, I know you really don't want to put a benefit plan in place. And I also know you definitely don't want to pay for it, but you're going to do that. So let's do it effectively. Let's make sure that you understand the costs involved, because quite frankly, if you don't have skin in the game, don't do it, right? If, if you're dealing with an employer, and I seriously do get these questions where they just want the employees to pay 100%, I'm like, listen, you really should have benefit plan never come into your topic of conversation <laughs> because you're not willing to put some skin in the game. And that's the reality. Over the years, I have dealt with employers who really resent having to put a benefit plan in place and they thought that they had to, and they end up canceling it after a couple of years because they simply don't want it. So that was the reason for putting perspective together is to say, I understand and your feelings are okay and justified and in line with a lot of other people. But if you are interested, here's the ins and outs that I think you should know. Now, as far as actually having those two books available, do you use them like when you send somebody a bio of yourself? Do you say, you know, author of these two books or do you give copies away to your clients? And no, I'm not knocking your authorship here, but I'm sure you're not making any money on them, right? No, my gosh, no. I don't make any money on them except for, I made 75 bucks on Perspective last year from American sales, which really blew my mind. So I'm not getting anything out of the Canadian side. But the fact that American brokers see value in something that is a Canadian content just shows how little information is available for benefit plans that somebody who's wanting to know is actually buying from a Canadian author. I use it more or less with prospective clients to say, if you're on the fence about whether to deal with me or not, I am a credible person and this is what I do. And the writing shows that this is where my focus is because you can't read that and not know right off the bat that this is what this person does 24-7. This isn't somebody who's also dabbling in other forms of insurance. I don't. So that's the reason for that. It's more or less, I have not done a very good job of marketing, nor have I had any interest to market it. I love the joy of writing the book and I love being able to utilize it with prospective clients. Yeah, I think it's important to know why you're doing that. It's a ton of work to put a book like that together, right? So, and you're right about sort of a lack of resources. I find this is generally the case on the group insurance side, right? There's not a sort of how-to. I find it interesting. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, but because of my business career college doing the life license, occasionally I get somebody from Quebec who comes out here, like anywhere outside of Quebec to sell group benefits. And they say, what about the 
because in Quebec, you actually get a license to sell group insurance, right? They have the, the group insurance license. And here you do your LQP and there's a minimal amount of content in LQP about group insurance. I would love if they had a separate license for group insurance. I truly would. I think then and only then will we get the KLUs and the advocates to see it as not part of individual financial planning, but as a situation onto itself, because my, again, it's like the, the broom sweeping the ocean. What I often say is, you know, you're dealing with eight, 10, maybe more various coverages for hundreds of people, hundreds of employees at any given time, whereas life and disability is on that one person specific to that one person. Benefit plans encompass so many people. And at any, like every day, my email is full with people with questions. They have that many questions, then I would really like the the bodies that we rely on to see it as something that requires a bit of speciality. I agree with that. And I think about Dave Patriarch, our mutual acquaintance here, and he's sort of been forced into this advocate role because there's really nobody else doing it. You know, I've heard him say, I don't want to do that. And then G19 happened. I know there was others involved, like McClenahan. I know yourself. I know there was a bunch of people, Rob Crowder, I think. Kalu and Advocates did some stuff around you know, G19, for example, but it was all advocacy by default, right? Well, it, and it is. And it, I think it's a crying shame that if we look at the broker community, and I understand, so this isn't a, a judgment when I say this, but a third-party administrator is not a broker, and nor are they the insurance carrier, but it's a third-party administrator. So if you look at the broker community and you look at how many people try to be that general practitioner, everything to everybody, and you narrow it down to just those that are only focused on employee group benefits, my goodness, you're comparing a dime to a dollar. And I think you have to, if you're depending on your advocacy to come out of the insurance carriers or the third-party administrators, and I'm not slanting them, I'm not, because we definitely needed their advocacy, especially during G19. But we also need brokers to step up and see that you do need those specialized skills in employee benefits the same way as you wouldn't want just anybody selling IROC products or, or investments or something. You want somebody in the know because it's in the consumer's best interest to deal with somebody who's in the know. Absolutely. And I no knock like I wouldn't come to you, Lori, to do my buy sell. That's right. I, I said to a financial planner one time, he was like, you know, I can do benefits too. And I'm like, yeah, and I can do investments too. And he looked at me like I had three heads. He's like, well, what do you mean you can do investments too? I'm like, I'm licensed to do it. I've been trained to do it. That I choose not to do it doesn't mean that I can't. So let's get on the same page here. And if you, for any reason at all, think that I don't have clients that call me and say, listen, I love the way you deal with my benefit plan. Can you do this too? I could easily say yes, but I don't because it's not in the client's best interest for me to do so. So I will put them with the very best that I know who's going to make sure that their investments are taken care of. Yeah, that's perfect. Now, do you have any last minute thoughts before we wrap up any messaging for either the individual folks out there who are maybe 
interested in how they can be more effective on the group side or any messaging for the group insurance folks out there? Well, anybody can call and contact. I love having connections and and having a chat with people. That's my favorite. I love that you do a show like this, Jason, because you are our best advocate for all levels of insurance. So I can't wait to have you on the shift show to talk about insurance and the need for advocacy and education the way that you do it at Business Career College. So it's my pleasure to be included. Thanks very much, Laurie. And I know you and I have a very similar approach to education, you know, rising tide floats all boats and everybody can benefit from good education delivered well. So I appreciate your commitment to that. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jason. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So Please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. The number for today's episode is six. The number for today's episode is six. Okay, that wraps up the interview with Lori. In the links for today's episode, you will find a link to Lori's books. You'll find her Amazon page. And again, worth having both of her benefits books on your shelf. That is Perspective and Insights, both quite good. You'll also find a link to her Shift show. And finally, a link to the CLHIA press release concerning guideline G19. And I would like to ask you to pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. I've had quite a few nice emails lately about the podcast, but really it's great if people can leave that review on iTunes. It makes a big difference. It helps us to get discovered. I'd like you to also join us in two weeks time. And then we're going to have Sean Todd and Corey Butler on. Some of you might know Sean and Corey. I've talked about their episode previously, the Mind and Money podcast. And we're going to talk to them a little bit about what went into their decision to create a podcast, as well as how they do it and how they build content and build a schedule and so forth. It's a financial advisor, sort of client-facing podcast, what I would consider classic content marketing. Thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. 
Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast. Thank you.